What do you get genuinely excited about? Is it a popular music group? A sports team? Bass fishing? Every one of us have something in our lives that gets us excited. The question we want to ask today on Truth Encounter is, what does this have to do with worship? This is Truth Encounter, a program challenging you to get close to the biblical Jesus. When I mention the word worship, many of you probably think of a long, sober, and sometimes boring church service your parents made you endure as a child. As a teenager, many of you opted out of church because you wanted to be where the action was. What I want you to consider is that perhaps you left where the action really ought to be. As we turn to Revelation chapter 5, all of heaven gathers for an incredibly important purpose, to worship the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Our Truth Encounter study leader, Dave Wurtson, begins our study today mentioning some of the things we get excited about. And then he raises the question, what does this genuine excitement have to do with our worship of the Son of God? Let's join Dave for the study titled, The Ultimate Praise Festival. You go to work tomorrow, and you walk into the office, and somebody says, man, you're not going to believe it, but I was at the Stars game on Saturday night, and it's incredible. In fact, I'm going to fly up to St. Louis on Monday, and I'm going to go to the Stars game. person walks in, and maybe you meet him at lunch, and... And they begin to express how excited and joyful they are. Let's say he went down to Lake Whitney and the bass are running. And he tells me, man, you just, you just got to go with me this afternoon. And we're going to go out and we're going to go down because you throw the lure in there and the bass hit it just like that. In fact, you can't get the bass off quick enough in order to get another cast in. And he's just exalting in that bass. It's jumping out of the water and all that. Well, obviously, we're talking about all different areas. We start talking about different things that people are excited about. We talk about music. We talk about sports, and we talk about the stars. And You talk about uh, movies, and everyone gets excited about that. You talk about fishing, and people get excited about that. In fact, every one of you, in probably, in fact, one of those four things... I probably hit something that you're excited about. Every one of you can think of something this past week that you got high about, that you got excited about, that you got really, you know, enthusiastic about telling somebody about it. What I want you to understand is that that is at the essence of worship. You see, when you look in the dictionary at worship, you read the second definition that's given, and it says it means to give veneration to some supernatural deity. I almost feel like yawning when I read the quotation. How about you? It's giving veneration and dignity to some deity, some supernatural being. And I yawn another one. But when I look at where the word worship came from, I realize that it came from an old English word, and the old English word worship was like worth skeep, and it meant to declare something's worth, to declare its value, to declare how, how much you're moved by it, how much you exalt in that. You're all built for that. Every single one of you are built to get excited about things. You're built to declare the worth of something. 
And you feel alive when suddenly something really grips you and you're excited about participating in it. You're excited about telling someone about it. And then you'll find yourself automatically declaring its worth. That's what worship is. It's declaring the worth of someone or something. And what I want you to look at as we turn back to Revelation chapter 5 is that Revelation chapter 5 focuses our attention on the only one who's really ultimately worth giving your praise, giving your excitement, giving your enthusiasm to. You say, why is that? Because the truth of the matter is that there's going to come a day when there's going to be other fathers with other kids, and that daddy's going to be playing old U2 CDs, and the kid is going to say, Dad, that group is from the dark ages. I can't stand them. Man, why don't you get with it? In other words, there will come a day when U2 doesn't move the multitudes. They're going to get old. They're going to get gray. They're going to get, you know, so they can't even play their electric guitars anymore. And they're going to be gone. That's what happens. There's going to come a day when the, the marvelous star players are going to be in rest home somewhere. They're not going to be able to skate anymore. And it's very possible that, that the world might change. There might not even be NHL hockey in a few years. Who knows? There might be a new sport that comes along. And so all that adoration and all that praise will just prove to be temporary. You know about, well, fishing's going to last forever because you'll be fishing in heaven, so we won't mess with that. But what about the movies? Good night. Movies come and go. They put on a big hype and they, they give this great big push to get you all excited about them. And, and yet the critics are already saying not too moving a story. Starting to trash it. And all of this life, all of this life, we're going to find that our heart begins to beat for something. We get really excited about it and then suddenly, wham, it runs out of gas. But I want you to focus your attention and I want to focus my attention on someone who's going to never wear out. And he's going to be worthy of your praise forever and ever and ever. And we want to be able to capture a glimpse of heaven because as heaven gathers together, all the eyes of heaven in Revelation chapter 5 are focused on the Lamb. They're focused on the throne of God and someone that's high and lifted up at the center of the throne of God was the strange figure of a Lamb, not a lion, not a panther, but a lamb that was standing as if he was slain. The last time we were together in Revelation, we looked at the wonder of the pierced, of the wounded lamb. And I want you to realize that as you study the New Testament, you want to never get over the reality of this wounded lamb. 2,000 years ago, Jesus of Nazareth was pierced for you. That really happened in history. The Roman Empire didn't think it was important. It barely made Tacitus' history. It did make it, but barely. Josephus just mentions it in passing. It really meant very little to Jewish and Roman historians. And yet, what happened that day at Calvary forever changed your life and mine and the course of human history because the Lord God of heaven said that the payment for your sins... That the way for you to be forgiven, the way for you to know that you are a son and a daughter of God was forever paid. And all of heaven never gets over that. They stay focused on the lamb that was slain. And what we learn in this chapter is an incredible thing. 
We usually give praise and worth to someone who has great skill in playing beautiful music or has great military might and power like a great general that goes out and wins a great victory. We usually give great acclaim to an athlete who's able to win the game. But in Revelation chapter 5, we're focused on a very strange kind of a hero. He is a hero because he died. He is a hero because he suffered. In fact, in John's gospel, John makes a big statement by saying that Jesus was going to enter into his glory, but his ascent to glory was to enter through the cross. And Jesus introduces us to a very strange way to receive praise and glory. It is by humbling yourself. It is by being willing to die because you love others and you sacrifice everything on their behalf. You see, we're used to worshiping movie stars that are powerful and deserve praise because they're beautiful and because they're handsome and because they're powerful and because they're gifted. Not usually because they're willing to sacrifice for us. They're willing to die for us. But heaven's praise turns the world's praise on its head. And what I want you to realize is that the one that you need to really fall in love with, the one that I need to really get excited about, the one that I need to declare his worth, is the one that received the position of power. Because today, he does have a position of power. But he has that position of power because he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. As we turn to Revelation chapter 5, right in the middle of the chapter, we pick it up, the story, in verse 7. He, that's the lamb that was slain, came. And he took the scroll, that's the scroll of destiny, that we're going to be opening up for the rest of the book of Revelation. In Revelation 5, verse 7, it says that the lamb that was slain, Jesus, took the scroll from the right hand. That's the scroll that declares where human history is going, where it's going to end up, how it will all turn out. The lamb that was slain took from the right hand the power hand of God the Father who sat on the throne. Now, what happened... What happened in heaven when Jesus took the scroll that would declare the future? It says that when he had taken it, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, fell down before the Lamb. And they worshipped the Lamb. Why did they do that? Because there's only one being in all the universe that can take the scroll of destiny. One of the very first things I want you to underline in your thinking about why you should worship Jesus is that Jesus is the one that knows how history is going to end. You see, if we were to take an astrologer at the beginning of the 20th century, if we were to take some kind of a scientist that was going to give us analysis of the predictive future, if we would get a philosopher and we would sit them all down in 1899 and say, we want you to predict what's going to happen in the 20th century, what do you think their predictions would be like? What do you think they would tell you about? How many of you have read literature from 1899 or the years coming up to the beginning of the 20th century? How many of you have read about people that predicted that there would be two major world wars that would kill millions of people? How many of you read predicting that there would be the creation of the telephone and then the television and eventually the internet where the whole world community would be interlocked in global communication? Did anybody predict that kind of a thing? No, nobody predicted any of that kind of stuff. Nobody envisioned at all the world that we really live in. And nobody predicted with minute accuracy even the rise of the United States to power. When this century began, the United States was not the number one world ruler. 
We did not just naively sit and think, you know, we're the, the number one power broker in the world. England was the number one power broker in the world. Nobody would have ever guessed that these isolationist Americans would get pulled into World War I and then sucked into World War II, and they would arise from that after the Cold War and their fight with communism as the leader of the world. No one ever believed that. Nobody predicted it. But Jesus knows the future. There's only one person in all the universe that can predict with minute accuracy what wars are going to come, that can predict with minute accuracy who's going to be on top economically, There's only one person in all of history that knows exactly the day that you were to be born, what your career is going to be, who you're going to marry, what kind of a vocation you're going to have, when you're going to die, what's going to happen to you with your eternal destiny. Jesus knows all that. That's what it means that he can take the scroll of destiny. You say, Dave, why do we worship him? Why do we declare his praise? Because I don't know anyone else that can take the scroll of destiny. And with the angels that are in heaven, when we realize that Jesus can predict history like that, and he can predict our life like that, and he's in love with us like that, then we need to adore him, and we need to get excited about him, and we need to praise him. I want you to get a new glimpse of the lamb that was slain. Now, how does the heavenly choirs, how does the heavenly angels worship? You know, it's really a major thing in the church right now and in the, across America, literally across the world. In fact, it's not a new thing. Man, it's been present for the last 2,000 years. The church has debated about how should we worship God. And one of the things I just want us all to open our hearts to is we need to ask ourselves, well, how do they worship God in heaven? Because Jesus is giving us a foretaste of worship here on earth. What do the angels do? How do they worship the Lord in heaven? In in Revelation chapter 5, as we look at the response of the angels, the 24 elders, which are the elite hierarchy of heaven, and the four living creatures, which are key uh, cherubim, key powerful angels, right at the center of the throne of God, how do they worship? And it tells us right here. We're going to be able to get some of the instruments that they used, and we're going to be able to, to read the words of the song that they sing. Look at it. When he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, they fell down before the Lamb. So one of the things that we want to do in worship is to kneel, to bow down. Why do we do that? Because that's what you do in the presence of a king. If you were a good old Englishman, you would understand that you don't go into the presence of the monarchy of England and just go in there casually. And so part of our worship is going to be to bow before the great king. He's our daddy in heaven, so we're also going to have very intimate personal times because Jesus has taught us to pray, our daddy who's in heaven. And so part of your worship in your private life, your private worship is going to come out in your public worship. For example, if you're not worshiping during the week, then it's going to be very cold here. And you're just not going to feel, you're just not going to feel close to God at all because you have been totally distant from him. You see, your public worship just flows out of your private worship. And I want to encourage you in your private worship, when you're all by yourself, when nobody's looking, when nobody knows except the Lord God of heaven, be like Daniel of old. Daniel would get down on his face three times a day and worship the Lord. He would bow, not legalistically, but he would bow, get down on his knees and put his face on the ground because he was declaring, not just with his words, but with his whole body, that he worshiped the Lord as his great king. You need to do that to the Lord Jesus. It'll change your life. It'll change your walk with the Lord. 
It'll make you, it'll, it'll make this thing become alive to you. The angels of heaven, when they, they saw that the Lamb of God could take the scroll of destiny and he was going to be worthy to open it, they fell on their faces. It says that they fell on their faces, though, that they had two things in their hands. And the two things they have in their hands give us an insight into two of the components that need to be part of our worship of the Lord. Number one, it says that they fell down each one with a harp in his hand. Now, the harp is the major instrument. It's kind of the, the basic instrument that was used for worship in the Old Testament. In fact, I just took out some of the verses from the Old Testament. I thought I'd read some of them to you because it gives you some an idea of the worship of the Old Covenant. And what I want to understand that down through the years, some of you are from background where you debated in your churches whether or not we should use musical instruments in the church. And some churches won't use any musical instruments. Some churches use only certain musical instruments. I remember in my own life when I first learned to play the guitar, that I was disallowed in some of the meetings that I did with the trio that we traveled with to play the guitar because the guitar was an unholy instrument because the organ was the holy instrument. When Ira Sankey took the organ to England for D.L. Moody's Crusades, the Scottish divines that were controlling the Presbyterian churches of Scotland, mounted a powerful offensive against D.L. Moody's crusade. you know why? Because he had an organ. You know what they called his organ? They called it Satan's Box of Whistles. But you see, over time, the, the Lord got a hold of Devil's Box of Whistles... And for many of you, the organ, especially, man, a Hammond organ or a pipe organ, man, that's not Satan's box of whistles. That's God's ordained instrument of praise. Some of you are from backgrounds where they said, well, in the New Testament epistles, they, they never mentioned any musical instruments. Kind of an argument from silence. We don't read in the New Testament any churches using musical instruments. So we have entire groups of believers that don't use any musical instruments. And that becomes a major focus of the church. There are no musical instruments used in the church. Now, what I want you to think of, I'm going to read the way that they worship the Lord under the Old Covenant. My purpose for doing that is that I believe that there's some of you that are horn players. There's some of you that are, that are percussion players. There's some of you that are singers. There's some of you that, that, that are going to be violinists. There's some of you that are going to be guitar players. You're going to be electric guitar players. And what I want you to do is I want you to listen because I want you to understand that God is speaking under the Old Covenant. And this is the way in his hymn book. Psalms are the hymn book of old Israel. And this was under the Old Covenant, which isn't nearly as good. It's not nearly as free as the New Covenant of Hebrews that we talk about, that we're under. But look how they worship the Lord. David writes in Psalm 33, praise the Lord with a heart. Make music to him with a ten-stringed lyre. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully and shout for joy. I want you to realize in old Israel, man, they had the lyres going, they had the strings going, and they shouted for joy because they were in touch with God. Man, if you just got delivered through the Red Sea, if, man, if God just parted the waters, you don't sit there and go, oh, that wasn't any big deal. Man, the women in Israel grabbed tambourines and they said, Good night, we're free, we're a free people. 
They were free because God delivered them and they sang pray to the Lord. Psalm 49, my mouth will speak words of wisdom. The utterance of my heart will give understanding. Here's a teacher. You would almost think it was Dave Wurtzen or Dave Lowry or Tim or Hans teaching one a Sunday morning. My mouth will speak the words of wisdom of Proverbs. The utterance of my heart is going to give you understanding. But he's not talking about what I'm doing now. He's talking about the lyricist of a musician. He said in the next words, I will turn my ear to a proverb. With a harp, I will expound my riddle. You don't think Joan Baez taught the United States her message? You don't think when I was growing up that Peter, Paul, and Mary didn't grip Greenwich Village and then grip the entire nation by using stringed instruments and putting it together with skillful lyrics? You don't think that they communicated a message? Man, they fueled the whole anti-war movement with their music, with their bard, with their poetry. Bob Dylan was a brilliant poetist. Those, those guys knew how to communicate. What I want to share with you, I want that poet, I want the, I want the future beetle to be here focused on Jesus. I want to have the future musicians, the future poets, the future musicians that are doing this for the glory of God to communicate not where's all the flowers gone, but about the tremendous Lord of the flowers. Boy, I want, to, I want to set you free, teenagers, young people, adults. If you're moved to write poetry, some of you are poets. I want to encourage you to keep doing that. Write, share, give them to the body of Christ. Be free. We're under the new covenant. David says, my heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. How does he express that? That thrill of a steadfast heart. I will sing and I will make music. Awake my soul. Awake harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. What is David saying? He says, man, when I get up in the morning, he's kind of like my dad. I'm not like this, so you're going to have to pray for my sanctification. My dad would awake the dawn with a song. I mean, I'd hear him blow his nose like I told you, like he was going to blow a trumpet. And then he'd be singing. And I used to be in bed saying, Dad, would you just be quiet? You're driving me nuts. I just can't believe it. But David would join with my dad and sing, Pray the Lord. He awakened the dawn. He went out and watched the sun come up. And as he watched the sun come up, he pictured himself awakening the dawn with his praise to the Lord. Do you do that? Let's do that. It's going to change your life. All by yourself, watching the sun come up or driving to work in the morning. You're in the car by yourself. Sing to the Lord like David did of old. Just a few more. Psalm 81. Sing for joy to the God our strength. Shout aloud to the God of Jacob. Begin the music. Strike the tambourine. Play the melodious harp and lyre. Sound the ram's horn. Good night. All of Israel. Man, it's almost like the whole orchestra cranking it up. Getting ready to praise the Lord. He says, it is good to praise the Lord and make music to your name, O Most High. The Psalms close at the very end of the Psalms. In Psalm 149, or I'll read Psalm 150. The very last song in Israel's hymn book goes like this. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his acts of power. Praise him for his surpassing greatness. Praise him with the sounding of the trumpet. Praise him with a harp and the lyre. Praise him with a tambourine and with dancing. Praise him with strings and flute. Praise him with a clash of cymbals. Praise him with resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath 
Praise the Lord. How many of you are breathing this morning? So what are you supposed to do? Man, you, you, you capture some of the feel of this, man. It's like you're, you, you just got to get a hold of something. You got to get a hold of something to be able to praise the Lord with it. And that's what worship is. Part of the aspect of worship is to focus on our king, high and lifted up, to worship the Lamb of glory who's been slain for us. And I want what turns you on, some of the most beautiful music in all the world. The Messiah was a musician, a believing musician that was filled with discouragement. He was bankrupt. He was destitute. His career looked like it had come to an end. And there in England, he sat by himself, but the glory of the Lord gripped his heart. The wonder of Easter, the wonder of the resurrection, the wonder of the cross gripped his heart. And he came out with words that have thrilled people by the millions. He was following what the Psalms say. There were harps in their hands. If the angels have harps in their hands, what do you have in your hand? And I want to encourage you, if you're a musician, if you love instrumentation, if you like to play things, I want to challenge you, play it for the glory of God. Music is a very important thing. It's very easy to do it just for yourself. It's very easy to do it just for pride. You all know the emotion of that. It's very easy to have hurt feelings. It's very easy to be caught up in the push and the pull of, of, of what music does to us emotionally. And instead of praying for one another, man alive, when we're all bowing before the throne, what right do any of us have to be there? Don't you understand that? And what I want to do is I want you to pray that we're going to be asking, what do I have in my hand? What do I have in my hand? What's the instrument that I use to bring praise and worship to the Lord? Maybe it's just your voice. You know, some of you just sit there Sunday morning, you never sing. You never open your mouth. You know, that hurts God. You know why you won't sing? You say, well, my voice sounds horrible. The person sitting next to me won't like what I sound like. You know what that is? You know what that is. It's your pride. Know why some of you won't raise your hand? Because you're pride. You're thinking about, man, what is a person going to think next to me? Or when I was a kid, the people that raised their hand, boy, they were those other kind of people, and boy, they were low life, and they were from a low class, and that's why I won't do that. Listen to yourself. Listen to what you're saying. Listen to yourself, please. This is serious. We need to be humble before the Lord, like children. It's not about culture or tradition or what we like and what we don't like. It's about the joy of being with your brothers and sisters. People that love you and that you love. Focus on the King of Kings. Little children in this group that get excited about Jesus have no trouble allowing themselves to express it. But as an adult, I do. And I want to encourage you, it's important to ask yourself, am I humble before the Lord? Am I thinking about his honor and his praise? There were harps in the hands of the angels. And they were out of themselves enough that they would just get down and bow before the king of glory. And one day, and I praise God for this, one day, red and yellow, black and white, you're going to be there. We're going to be joining in this heavenly choir. And boy, am I thankful that the arguments will be over 
the personality conflicts will be over. The emotion is going to be totally focused on Jesus. And I want you to pray that we'll begin to focus our heart on Jesus today. That the Holy Spirit will give us the sweet praise and worship that he wants us to have. It's not style. The Lord wants all different styles and all different... He, we want to do chants and hymns and, and contemporary praise and all new music and old music. We need the whole artistic panoply of the, of the church of God. But I want you to see that the heart of it is to join in this adoration of the King of Kings. And you'll have freedom. And I want to encourage some of you, because maybe it's a, a missing dimension in, in some of your relationships with the Lord. I, I really mean this. If you don't ever have a time in your own personal life where you have times where you sing to the Lord by yourself, and where you thank the Lord by yourself, and you write, and you, and you get words out on your own, then try it. It'll renew your heart. If you're really discouraged, if you feel that there's no hope, if, if you feel angry, if you feel angry with life or angry with somebody else, you know, praise and worship will begin to melt that ice, begin to melt that hurt. And I find it in my own life, as I focus on the lamb that was slain, he starts to soothe my angry heart and he starts to soothe my hurts and he, start to, he starts to hurt to heal my depression. Praise and worship is very powerful. But they not only had harps in their hands, but they also had bowls of incense. And what in the world are these bowls of incense? What are bowls of incense? Well, in the Old Testament, the priests had to concoct this strange mixture. You've all gone into a candle shop, and I think that's probably the closest I can get to you. How many of you have ever been in a candle shop? And you go in and you smell all those different aromas. And, and how many of you like those? Some of you, some of you probably, I mean, it makes me have an allergy. But all of you know, how many of you have ever smelled something that you really like? How many of you smelled something that you just can't stand? So what's your reaction? You smell something that you really like? What's your feeling inside? How do you react inside? How do you feel about it inside? Makes you feel good, doesn't it? It makes you feel receptive. It makes you feel alive. Something that pukes, that smells awful, makes you feel dead. In fact, we automatically say, man, that smells, you smell dead. Well, if you think about the power of smell, you'll understand the, the importance of incense. You see, God in heaven in his Old Testament sanctuary would have beautiful incense that was perpetually burning, that the priest would keep burning in the presence of the Lord at his altar. And it would bring a pleasing aroma to him. And that used the imagery that as the Lord smelled that beautiful incense, that he would look with favor on his people. He would say that it smells great and it makes me feel good. But the text tells us, look what it says in Revelation, what's the incense that we bring into the presence of God. Look what it said. It's incredible. It says they had a harp in their hand, but verse 8 also tells us that they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. That's incredible. Your prayers this week have been carried to the presence of God by the angels and by the Lord Jesus himself, because he is our intercessor, according to the book of Hebrews, and before God, your heavenly daddy, they are like a beautiful aroma. They make him feel tremendous. He loves to hear his children pray to him. Do you understand that? That's incredible. That's what prayer is. 
And when you get a hold of that, you're going to want to pray when you're by yourself in your car. You're going to want to pray before you have a test. You're going to want to pray when you're in an athletic contest. You're going to want to pray when you're facing sickness because you're going to realize what an incredible privilege when I pray. My heavenly daddy responds just like he's smelling the most beautiful aroma. He has the same kind of feelings that I have when Janae on the night of of the prom comes in before she goes out and sits in my lap as a daddy and says, Daddy, I love you. When I'm thinking, man, she's all grown up and I'm going to lose her. And instead she communicates sitting right in my lap. That is a pleasant aroma. Do you understand that? And that's the way God feels about you. That's the way he feels when you pray to him. And some of you are afraid to pray because you think, man, God doesn't like the words and I haven't learned all this biblical jargon yet. Get over it. Please don't learn any of it. Just talk to your heavenly daddy. And he's going to take your prayers. The Spirit's going to pray with with words that you can't even imagine. And he's going to bring it before the throne of God and it's going to be like beautiful incense before the throne of God. So we have the instruments in our hands. We have our prayer that we bring to the Lord. Now we get a chance to look at the words of the song that they sang. This is awesome. We get to hear what angels, how they compose poetry, lyrics for the glory of God. Look what they say. You are worthy to take the scroll. They begin to sing. You're worthy to open its seal because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men for God from every tribe, from every language, from every people, from every nation. What are the angels excited about? The angels are excited about the redemption of Jesus. What do the angels sing about? They sing about your redemption and mine. They sing about the fact that Jesus is at the center of the throne of heaven because he suffered and died, and when he suffered and died, he paid the purchase price for her. The Lord purchased men and women from every national group, every ethnic group. Why do we need to have a presence in Asia for the glory of God? Because the Lord purchased Asians from every tribe in Asia. Cam Townsend, who I knew as a kid that founded Wycliffe, was moved by these verses. He said, man, the Lord says there's going to be people there from every language group, every ethnic group, every language. There's going to be people in the heavenly throng. What are we doing to reach those language groups? And that generated the largest mission thrust in the evangelical world. This is the thrust of that. And I want you to, I want you to ask yourself, if this week you haven't had any concern for the world, that you listen, I want the news to move you to pray. And I want you to get a passion about reaching every tribe and every nation, every tongue, every people. It says, why should we reach them? Because of the incredible thing that he does for people. Look what verse 10 says. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. You know, that almost blows me away. I'm looking at the priests of the kingdom of God. How many of you this week have thought of yourselves as the priests of the kingdom of God? You know, one of the things, you know, like when I go to lunch with a group of people and they ask me what I do, I always say, well, I'm a teacher, I'm a lecturer, you know, um, and say, well, though, do you t- what course do you teach? And sooner or later it gets around, I have to come up, well, I've been a pastor of Midlothian Bible Church. Then I'm in another class, right? Because now the priest is among us. The stories change, the language change, everything changes. I want you to realize that, man, I'm not any more of a priest than you are. 
And I can't pray any more effectively than you. I can't reach people any better than you can. I want every one of you to realize that you've been ordained because of the shed blood of Jesus to be a priest. And you need to be a priest like as Van ministers in the funeral home this week. He needs to be a priest. He's there as a glorious representative, a priest for God. What a ministry. And I'm so excited about that opportunity that the Lord's given him. I think of Gary in the trucking industry and Gary and Brenda working in that. How many truckers do you think would listen to the preacher of Midlothian Bible Church? But you know what? Day after day after day, Gary can be a priest in his trucking industry. Do you realize that? Bobby is the police chief. Day after day, being an effective policeman, guiding his troops, but being God's priest in that area. Gerald is a dentist. Dentists have people coming in in Deborah's. They have one person after another coming into their office. A priest reaching all those people in a way that I could never reach them. I want you to capture a vision. I'm just picking out a few of you so you'll understand what I mean. We rejoice because we're priests. And why should we be excited about the Lord? Because you are going to rule on the earth. I want you to know that any place you trod on planet earth one day in Christ you're going to rule and reign forever and ever and ever. We close with a great hymn. The heavenly choir just loses everything as they adore the Son of God and they close singing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive the power and the wealth and the wisdom and the strength and the honor and the glory and the praise. Why does Jesus deserve all those things? Because he is the one who has all the power. Do we believe that? He is the one that has all the wealth. One day, you might not be rich now, but one day in Christ, you're going to have all the wealth of the nations that belongs to you in Christ. Wisdom. Some of you are struggling to get through school and you struggle to get the knowledge of this world. Jesus is the ultimate source of all wisdom, of all understanding, of all truth. And he's the one that deserves our honor, our glory, and our praise. This passage closes with saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, to the praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. So be it. You can count on it. And the elders fell down and they worshiped the Lord. I want you to see in closing, it says, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. We worship Jesus fully equal to his Father. You see how John unites those two things? We started out this heavenly worship survey. We got a chance in Revelation chapter 4 to go up into heaven. And chapter 4 focused on God the Father, God the Creator. Chapter 5 is focused on God the Son, God the Redeemer. And the great antiphony of this great uh, orchestra of praise closes with all of heaven focused on God the Creator and His Redeemer Son. And then they all fall on their faces and worship before the Lord. Heavenly Father, I want to ask you, Lord, that as we've been able to listen and be able to see through the revelation of Scripture the way the angels worship the Son of Glory, I'd ask you, Lord, that by the power of your Spirit that you would help us to enter into that worship today and throughout this week. Along with the teaching of the Word and prayer and the fellowship of believers, One of our basic purposes is also to be able to praise you and to worship you. And I'd ask you, Lord, that you would defeat anything that Satan's trying to do 
to hurt us individually in our worship of you. I pray that you would defeat anything he's trying to do in our corporate worship. We'd ask you, Lord, that our pride would be totally crucified before the crucified Christ. Now help us to remember, Lord, as we go out into this week, that we are the priests, that we are the ones that need to teach your word to the people that we're working with, that we need to be the ones that they come to when they need somebody to pray for them. We need to be the one that they feel is close to you and that can teach them how to know Christ. And so I just would ask you, Lord, that the power of your spirit would rest upon our priesthood in the marketplace this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.